When we read the Gospels, we can see that there was a time when Jesus was wildly popular. He had all kinds of people who wanted to follow him. They, they wanted to be with him. They wanted to be close to him. And uh, so much so, in fact, that uh, even the teachers of the law and the Pharisees uh, wanted to follow him. So we catch up with that in Matthew chapter 8, where it says, Teacher said one, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, before we read on, I mean, it's like, those are, those are good words, aren't they? I mean, if somebody says they want to follow Jesus wherever he goes, wherever they send him, you know, any, I mean, that sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? So what does Jesus say? But Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now the disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Boy, it sounds pretty callous, doesn't it? I mean, why would Jesus answer this way? Because following Jesus is no casual thing. It takes second place to nothing. You know, it's first place. It's going to change your life to follow Jesus. Change your attitudes, change your behavior, change the way that you live. And contrary to what's popular these days, following Jesus is not always going to be easy. It's going to cost you. And uh, while filled with blessings, I mean, following Jesus is filled with blessings, but still, it's not always going to be easy. Just ask those who are martyred for the faith, people who stood for their faith all the way to their death. They knew that the fundamental move of the Christian faith was to move from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness, that that's, that's where it is at, it's a, it, and it's not for everybody. It's never meant to be every, for everybody, really, because, as Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Many will not want to follow Jesus once they count the cost. He knew that it was easy to follow him when he was popular, but what about when he was arrested? What about when the crowds turn against him? What about when he is no longer popular but abandoned? Will you follow him then? In the book of Acts, there's an account of the time in the city of Ephesus, which is a city that's located in what we now know as Turkey, where the faith was just born there. And it became so wildly popular there that so many were following, following what they called the way, which is the way of Christ, that there was a riot in the city where the silversmiths rioted against uh, the Christian movement because they saw that their livelihood was being washed away. The people, so many people were being converted to the Christian faith that they were no longer buying these little silver statues of the goddess Artemis. So they rioted against them. Now, Ephesus was a center of pagan worship in Asia Minor. And in the nearby town of Bithynia, history tells us that there was a new governor during the time of the emperor Trajan, who became alarmed when he, when he first took office and he looked around at the pagan temples, and he discovered that the temples were being neglected. And they were being neglected because so many people were being converted to Jesus that they were no longer going to the pagan temples. And he was alarmed by this. So what he did was he began to arrest Christians, and uh, he would torture them and promise to release them if they would just simply worship Caesar's image instead of worshiping Christ. 
but finding them, in his words, too arrogant to worship Caesar's image, he ordered them executed instead. That practice of forced emperor worship began during the time of the emperor Domitian. And it was during that time that the book of Revelation was written. And it was sent out to churches beginning with the church that was in that town of Ephesus. Now, in the first chapters of that book of Revelation, we can find letters directed to seven churches, beginning with Ephesus, and it was in a circuit where uh, if you were uh, going to be carrying a letter uh, to these various seven churches, you would start here and you would continue on this circuit, and that determined the order of the letters in the book of, 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 uh, the book of Revelation. And it was to that first city, uh, Ephesus, that Jesus spoke these words in his letter to the believers in Ephesus. When he said this in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, this letter that we see here, it follows the form of letters during that time. And what they would do is they would start out by identifying the letter writer. In this case, it identifies the letter writer as Jesus. He is the one who holds these churches in his hands. And then it goes on from there. Normally what will happen next in, in ancient letters is it will go on to a period of praise or thanksgiving, complimenting the, the people who are going to be reading the letter to whom you know, the letter is written. Uh, and uh, sometimes in these letters, uh, the first seven letters, we can see that the churches were so fallen that there was nothing really to praise them about, which is a pretty sad state, but not Ephesus. No, in Ephesus it says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You've persevered, endured hardships. Now, the real, one of the real problems in the early church was false teachers. And what would happen is that, like in the city of Ephesus, Paul came into the city, he preached the good news, people came to faith, and he began to set up a church there. He left Timothy behind to work with the church and to organize the church and to um, help the church to grow, but eventually Timothy had to leave as well. And then in that vacuum that was there, they couldn't get around very fast, and even letters couldn't travel very fast. Of course, they had no telephones, no email, anything like that. They couldn't communicate very, very quickly. So what would happen is false teachers would come in behind them and claim to be part of the way, part of the cause of Christ, but they would teach false teachings. 
And what could happen is, is a group of people that, that were headed in the right direction get off track. But in this case, with Ephesus, what he's saying is that they didn't do that. They remained faithful and true. The Word was their guide. But there was one problem, Jesus said. He said this in verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And in this letter, I think we can see some things that really apply to even our church today. Well, what we can see is that we, we have so many things here that are praiseworthy. You know, we do hold fast to God's Word. There's so many temptations out there to get off track, so many things in this world to, to lead us astray. But we do hold to God's Word, and we do follow that Word. There are many things here in this church that, that we can lift up, and it can be a model for other believers to follow. And yet, many followers of Jesus today have lost a lot of passion for Jesus We've accommodated to the culture in ways that we don't even realize. And like Ephesus, I think maybe we could stand to be called out by Jesus, who says to us as well, you have forsaken your first love. Now, in Ephesus, there, were plenty of per- there was plenty of pressure to conform to the world around them, uh, to conform to that culture. It was a powerful uh, city politically, Ephesus. It was also a center of pagan worship, a center of emperor worship. Now, normally emperors would be considered to be gods after their death. But in this case, Domitian, the emperor at this time, uh, was one of, uh, I think it was only two emperors who proclaimed himself to be a god while he was still alive. Now, this was considered to be a no-no among the Romans themselves. But, but this is the way that it was. It was that Domitian wanted people to worship him as a god while he lived. So he would set up images of himself in places where they practice the emperor cult, such as in the city of Ephesus, which means that these believers were under pressure to conform to this culture by worshiping the image of the emperor Domitian, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, where they were commanded to bow down and worship to this, this golden idol, this golden image that the king of Babylon had set up. Now the believers in Ephesus are commanded to bow down and worship this image of the emperor Domitian. What would they do? Now, in addition to, to the pressure to conform to this kind of worship that outright rejects God, there's the more subtle ways of just kind of slipping into apathy in a city that is incredibly prosperous. Ephesus was, was a powerful city, but it was also a rich city. And with prosperity can come apathy. And after a while, they discovered, as Jesus called them out, that they had lost their first love. This, this letter was written at a time when uh, the, the, the believers in Ephesus, many of them anyway, had been Christians for a very long time by, by this point, and complacency, complacency began to set in. Now, uh, before you know it, these, these Ephesians began to rest on their laurels, the past times of faith when they, their faith was you know, on a mountaintop and it was fresh. And it was alive, but now just, they were just getting by by glimpses of what they once knew of Jesus. 
And this was the case for believers in Sardis, to whom Jesus wrote, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Because Jesus invites you to a feast, to a party. That's what Jesus taught in one of His parables when He said this. In that parable, uh, God the Father is represented by a king who wanted to throw a party for his son. His son was newly married, and this was a wedding feast. So the king sent out messengers to his people, the people that he would normally expect would come to this, to invite them to come to the feast. But uh, they didn't want to come. Now, the wedding feast is is a popular image in Scripture that is used to describe what happens on Judgment Day. That on Judgment Day, there will be a party unlike a party that has ever been known. When Jesus, who is the groom, gets, to, gets together with His bride, the church, hell is that which happens outside of the, the feast hall. But heaven is what happens inside. Heaven is the feast. The price of admission to this feast, to this party, has been paid in full by Jesus, by the, by the groom. Now the only thing to do is to respond to the invitation and come. But who wouldn't come? I mean, it's the party of the, of the millennium. It is the party that, that the king is throwing, and you are invited. Who wouldn't come to that? But one after another, people came up with excuses not to come. They were distracted by the things of this world, this culture, So Matthew 22, verse 5 says this, But they paid no attention as the invitation was given to them. They paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. Those those people who were invited were God's people. They were the king's people. They were the ones who one would think would come. But they were distracted. They lost their first love. So what happened? The king sent out his servants again. This time they invited the people that no one would think would come, and they came. His own people did not come, but others did. And verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. In the early church, when one turned to Jesus and was baptized, and they came out of the baptismal water, they were clothed in a white robe. And the white robe represented Jesus having washed them clean. And what this is saying is this, is that the only way into the feast is by wearing the garments of the groom. The only way into the feast... The only way into this wedding hall is by having yourself cleansed by Jesus himself. There is no other way. All else belongs outside. This man who tried to enter the kingdom apart from Jesus, but there was no other kind of entry. So he went outside, and and outside he was with those who had rejected Jesus, those who wouldn't come to the wedding feast. 
So Jesus said this, remember, remember that time when you were so on fire for Jesus. Remember that mountaintop. Remember when the Spirit was blowing fresh through your soul, through your life. Remember, because that's where we need to be. Not in that exact moment, but right now. Not recreating that, but letting the Spirit blow fresh again today. Remember the height from which you have fallen, he said. And repent, which that word is a word that has to do with slavery in that culture. Where a person who would repent is one who would turn around, who would experience manumission, who would experience being set free from that to which they were enslaved. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, if you do not turn around, you will continue to be enslaved to that thing. And I will come. I will come to you, he said. And remove the lampstand. I'm going to remove the lampstand from its place. The fire of God would be removed. The presence of Jesus removed. So turn around, he says. Seek the Lord while he may be found, he says. And the good news for you and me today is this, that he is here. And he may be found here tonight. The invitation to the feast has been given. The invitation is given to you. It is engraved with His blood shed for you. The price has been paid. Now, come to Him. Now, as a sign of this tonight, I'm going to invite you in just a moment here to come forward. And you can have ashes placed on your forehead. And this is a sign, somebody on Sunday asked a good question that I know a lot of people are probably wondering, what's with the ashes in Ash Wednesday? And it's this, it's an ancient, it's an ancient practice that goes back to Old Testament times. When people who were in mourning, people who were in repentance, people who were wanting to turn back to God would do things like take dust from the ground and pour it over their head, or they would take ashes from the fire and pour that over their head. And they would take their garments and tear them to say, God, I am yours. But God says to us, rend your hearts, not your garments. And we can come forward today to receive these ashes as a sign that you are turning to him. Turning to him as your first love.